Now, um, especially back in the early parts of uh, my wife and I's relationship, I, uh, I consider myself uh, to be a poet. Uh, I, I would write some poetry to my wife. Uh, I actually had one of those poems uh, published in some book that you pay like $100 to be published in, which means you're not published, but you paid for it anyway. So I thought tonight, in light of poetry and all of your deep love of it, uh, that we would um, we'd look at this very, very encouraging and fruitful poem. Uh, here we go. The title of this poem, and it is a poem, though it may not seem like it is, We Believe What We Tell Ourselves. So I, just, I really want you to sit and to bask in the beauty of this amazing truth, okay? Here's how the uh, poem goes. Tell yourself everything will work out. Things will get better. Tell yourself you are important. You're worthy of great things. You are lovable. And this is, this is the moment right, where you like, you, you give yourself a hug or something, you know. Um, the time is now. We believe uh, what we uh, tell ourselves. This too, of course, shall pass. Uh, you can be, uh, here's a great one. You can be what you really are. What does that even mean? Right? No one knows. Right? How about, how about this one? The best is yet to come. You are strong. Right. And then finally, you can do this. Um, beautiful, beautiful junk. Right? I mean, I literally get sick to my stomach when I look at things like this. But I remember a time where I had posters like this up in my high school bedroom. And you remember like all of the, the string of posters, right, that had a mountain with some dude climbing on it. And then it had the one, you know, the one word underneath it and one of these idioms underneath it. I want to make sure every single one of you guys understand what we're doing here. We're not doing this. Ever, period. Um, I have no intentions right now in this time to tickle your heart with pleasantries that are formed to make you feel better about yourself. That is not this church's intention. I, I know that there is a great desire in all of us to hear these things at sometimes. Like there's been moments here of life where, where a piece of this would have been really or has been really encouraging. We're like right at the right time, as you were going to the bathroom, you read one of these, because these find themselves often in, you know, the graduation toilet bowl readings, right? And they came at the right time, and you found it deeply enriching and encouraging. I think these are the things that we want often, but I'm telling you, these are not the things that we need. Uh, What we need is God's Word, and here's why. Uh, God's Word has proven the test of time. God's Word, the Scripture says, is living and active. It's alive. It's moving. It's directing. It's shining light on. It's guiding. So I want to tell you what we do here. We study God's Word because of those things. We could all leave maybe feeling better about ourselves with teachings that would take a line like this and then expound on it. But what we found much better success in is exalting God by reading and studying God's Word. So I I don't know whether you've been here eight years or it's your first time. We all need that reminder. This is why we're going to open the Bible. So that we can study something that is providing life. So listen, 
I'm going to pray to this passage is beautiful. I mean beautiful, all right? I am just, I'm insanely fired up tonight. This passage is insane, okay? I'm going to pray for us. We're going to pray that God comes in power, that he shows us, that he teaches us, that he encourages us, and that he reminds us that his words are living and active. So God now, like only you can, shape our hearts around the premise and the truth of your scripture And God, I'm just so grateful that you've brought every single person here tonight, no matter where they're at in their journey, God. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Uh, Last week, bread rained down from heaven. That bread was called manna, which literally means, what is it? Okay. Uh, They didn't know what to call it, so they creatively entitled it, what is it? They weren't sure. It was like a frost on the ground. Very uh, small seed-like substance. That one gathered together, baked, used in certain substances, it became like, like bread. We also saw a God provide the Israelites in their journey in the desert last week, quail and massive amounts of it. So now they have meat and bread and sustenance, but their wilderness journey continues and the chaos therefore ensues. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, were you there? Say, I'm there. Awesome. I love it. Verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel, that means all of them, and I've said it a million times in this journey, there's a whole lot of them, about 1.5-ish million, moved on from the wilderness of sin, capitalized, as I mentioned last week, though it is a play on words and a certain pun, uh, there actually was called the wilderness of sin, okay? They moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. God is the one that's directing their journey. And they, uh, they camped at Rephidium, but look at what the scripture says, but there was no water uh, for the people to drink. So uh, cue the map here. This will again remind us of where we're at. You'll see the wilderness of sin in the light gray in the upper left-hand portion of the red box. Rephidium is uh, just underneath uh, the wilderness of sin. This is where they're at. And uh, unfortunately, they find themselves again with no agua for the bilingual. Now, this is a problem that has already uh, been accomplished by God. Uh, You remember, they go without water for three days in the wilderness. They come on finally some water that was, anyone remember? That was bitter. Remember, God makes it sweet. So now here again, though they have tremendous amounts of quail, a whole lot of manna, they are now down some water. The very important, interesting thing to note about this is uh, in the middle of verse 1. According to the commandment of who? Of the Lord. In other words, they are without water according to the commandment of the Lord. You guys understand the premise, right? You understand here that God has directed the path of the Israelites to be in the wilderness with no water. And now herein lies the question that we'll be wrestling with all evening. It is this. Next slide, you put up my question. Uh, My question is this. Do you want to be taught reliance? Is this an interest of yours? Now, let's talk about uh, child rearing. How many of you guys are parents? With a quick shout out. Wow. Uh, I know we got more than that. So whether you're just not wanting to claim it currently or feeling like a bad parent, uh, irregardless. Um. Listen, when you're, when you're a parent, you want your kids to grow. Like, you want them to learn how to read. 
you definitely want them to learn how to sleep without waking up at night. Amen? Like, that's pretty much the thing that new moms tell each other, you know? And that's the question that's asked, how much are they sleeping, you know? Everyone wants to know, and then finally, when they, you know, when they sleep all the way through the night and the bags come out from underneath the eyes of the moms, and once in a while a dad, right, uh, then it's a beautiful thing. This, we want our kids to grow. We want our kids to learn how to tie their shoes, don't we? It's a horrible thing when you're, t- when you're still tying your kids' uh, shoes when they're 12, right? We-, we want our kids to be able to eat for themselves. It's a beautiful day when they can hold a fork or a spoon in their hands and shovel the food in. These are all good things. We want our kids and we train our kids to be what? Self-sufficient. And when they're not, or when they age and they're not maturing as they should be, or what culture would say can be, then we say that these kids aren't as developed. Isn't it interesting then, when we look at the journey of the Israelites, does it appear to you that God is trying to teach his people how to be self-sufficient, or does it seem like God's teaching his people how to be reliant on him? In other words, is the sign of maturity of the Israelites more self-sufficiency or is the sign of maturity for the Israelites a full reliance on God? Listen, I've said it a million times and I'll say it now a million and one. The gospel is so counter everything that we know to be true most often in the flesh. Everything in us would say, push everyone to be more self-sufficient. That's where life is at. And the gospel says, find more and more reliance, more trust, more submission of this amazing, great God. And that's what God is doing in the wilderness. Again, no water. Do you want to be taught reliance or not? Do you want to learn from your past? Do you want to trust that I will provide, that I'm not going to kill you in the desert. Do you want to trust those things? So before we move another step, I just want to ask all of you, just to ponder, just to think, write it in your journal, text it in your phone to yourself, whatever. Do you want to be taught reliance? With the full recognition that in verse 1, a piece of that teaching for the Israelites is sending them in the desert at the command of the Lord with no water. Verse 2 Therefore, the people quarreled. Now we have an increase in the grumbling. Remember, they're complainers. They're grumblers. Okay? They they do a lot of moaning. Right. But now they're quarreling. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord, he says. I think this is actually a great opportunity for us to applaud the Israelites. And you're like, why? Like, we're finding them quarreling and again grumbling. I I think this is actually an amazing opportunity to applaud the Israelites. They are, by and large, incredibly consistent. You know? I mean, from the beginning of this moment, they they have journeyed through the wilderness at a very consistent complaining clip. Okay? You remember what we've seen so far in Exodus. Here's complaint number one. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Remember this one? Uh, What have you done to us and bring us out of Egypt? Okay? Complaint number two in their brilliant consistency. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? This is what we saw in the water turning from bitter to sweet. 
And he did, Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord, remember, showed him a log. The ever-classic log that saves the day, right? And finally, in Exodus 16, verse 2, we see this. And the whole congregation, this is last week, of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would, uh, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full and on and on and on. They are consistently grumbling. And Moses, in his frustration and his righteous anger, says again, why do you test the Lord? Why are you still battling? Why are you looking at me? I told you last time that this isn't an issue with me. It's an issue with the Lord. Well, this provides a great opportunity for us to ask one another, what are you consistent in? Some of you feel very consistently inconsistent, don't you? In fact, some of you thrive on that. What right now in your life are you consistent in that you find yourself doing all the time? Okay? I would imagine some of you are very, very consistent at looking in the mirror. Right? Some of you, you got that down. Right? Phenomenal at it. Anyone want to admit? Okay, that's me. Okay? All right? couple, and they're sitting next to each other. Um, so, some of you are very consistent at eating. Okay? How, how, many, how many folks do we have there? Very consistent, patterned, well done. Well done. We're always consistent at something. The question is what? And the Israelites so far have been consistent in their complaints. Is that what you want to be known for? Is that the kind of consistency that you want to build as part of your mantra? For the Israelites, it's again another complaint, not at uh, God, but again at Moses. Now, one of the things I'm consistent at, and this is that just kind of a moment of uh, confession with you guys. I'm very consistent when things get tough, whether it be with my family and my marriage, with my kids. I'm very consistent that I work harder. I pull up the bootstraps. I push through. Sweat a little bit more. Certainly not working out, but just in general. Um... I work harder. One of the things that I realized today, even in thinking about this, one of the sins in my heart is when things get tough, I find myself trying to push through instead of finding, my for, finding the first fruits of my heart consistently relying on God. In other words, going to Him. In other words, pursuing Him. Finding myself, again, pleading to Him. It's like I, I want and desire so much to get through the difficult time that I think that the best answer is me. And I'm just saying, again, as a reminder to myself and maybe to you, the best answer in those times is never you, is never me, ever. It's never. And for some of you, maybe it's not you, but it's another person, and it's never them. God may use them, but the answer then is God. You see, God may use them. So here are the Israelites again, verse 3, we see, but the people thirsted there for water, which... At least I'm thankful for that. Okay, they weren't complaining about no water because they were already well uh, thirstified. Um, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Here's what happens. Here's what I believe. When you get to a place where all you're seeing is perspective of man, 
then it causes you to make ludicrous statements like this. When all you see is the, is the perspective of yourself and your little sphere, and sphere of your hurt, your pain, your successes, your joys, if that's all you see, if that's all you care about, if that's all you desire, then it will cause you to live and exist in a fog. I mean, this is a ludicrous statement. It's the, the statement of all statements to make in anti what is happening in the situation. God has provided over and over and over, and yet again, that people are not yet trusting, not yet seeing things from God's perspective, still believing that somehow it's in the flesh that they're going to survive. And so they say, why are you going to kill us? And not just us, but our children, and not just our children, our livestock too. So look what Moses does, verse 4, and I absolutely love this, and we're going to hang here for just a minute. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? He said this before. You remember in Egypt, just before the plagues, like, what do you want me to do with this people? Like, how can I lead them? They're not following me. God, what do you want me to do? But do you notice where Moses turns? Uh, In marriage, it is very, very, very difficult not to retaliate. Amen? And the rest of you are either not married or currently in a fog, okay? About the silliest things. Have you ever found yourself in marriage arguing for like a half an hour about like just the absolute most nonsensical thing ever? But the whole issue was who was right. The whole issue was retaliation. The whole issue was she said this, so now I'm going to say that. And then, we, you know, we, we battle about what kind of blizzard to get from Dairy Queen. I mean, just crazy things. Obviously, Oreo. Um, <laughs> right? Moses doesn't retaliate. Uh, I was doing some thinking on this. And I started looking through the, the New Testament. And twice in uh, 2 Timothy and a couple times in Romans as well, and uh, a time in the early parts of James chapter 2, we see this mentality of quarreling, especially with meaningless words and on meaningless topics, is a complete waste of time. This, this doesn't have to be biblical necessary to be true, but the Bible affirms it. If Moses just retaliates to the people, you idiots! Like, what are you doing?! And then he just gets in this very combative form with them. And out of his frustration, he starts saying things about their mom and stuff that he shouldn't have, you know. And he's calling them to the table. And, you know, this argument arises. Like, no one's going to win in that moment. Where does Moses turn? He turns to the Lord. And he says, rightfully so, what do you want me to do with this people? Uh, Leadership is very, very difficult. Uh, one of the most frustrating pieces about leadership and it, in all forms, in the business world, coaching, being a teacher, many teachers here, um, pastoring, leading a lot of fame, all of the forms of leadership. One of the most frustrating pieces is when you're trying to take a group of people somewhere and you have this somewhere envisioned in your mind and they are not going with you. Right? It's so frustrating. It's so difficult because... You have this end goal in mind, and you know if you can get there, I mean, victory is, is everybody's. But for some reason, dragging their heels, they're not getting it, they're not understanding, they're not hearing it like you're communicating it, whatever. And this is Moses. But instead of retaliating, which is our certain nature, he turns to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? And look what he says. They're almost ready to stone me. That means that Moses felt threatened at this point. I mean, he literally thinks that his life is in danger. 
They're coming at me. So I, I'm, just to put it in your mind, I mean, I'm guessing he's looking at some, some men with, you know, very, very hateful faces. I don't think that people are like, uh, Moses, uh, you know, if you don't mind, would you be as kind as to get us some water, you know, from the Lord, or could you produce it, or whatever? No, I mean, I, these people are angry. They're yelling, so much so that Moses tells God they're going to kill him. And the Lord, verse 5, said to Moses, Pass on before the people. So what's his first instruction? Spend time where? Not quarreling with them. He says, pass on by, right? You need to leave them in their situation right now. And essentially, he's saying, you shake the dust off your feet for a second, and you pass on by, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, interesting, and take in your hand what? Come on. The staff, the reappearance of the staff. Here it is. It had gotten a little dusty, right? I mean, it got some massive use back in the day, right? And all of a sudden, God's like, hey, it's time to, you know, remember the last time we saw it? Parting some seas. Well, now they've been on a journey. God's like, you, you go get that staff again with which you struck the Nile. And he says, go. Verse 6, behold... I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, interesting, and water shall come out of it. This isn't, I'm not a, what's the, what's rock people, are they, uh, they're like archaeological, um, ge- ge- what are they? Geologists. So the, geolo- the geologists, they work with rocks, okay? And so we're going to leave we're going to leave the expertise to them. But in what I know about rocks, in general, water doesn't normally flow out of them. Agree? Can we all just agree with that? There's nothing else you've agreed so far with. Can we agree with that? Okay, thank you so much. So Moses is going to take his staff, he's going to strike the rock, and then water is going to come out of it and the people are going to drink. And the scripture says, "Look, and Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel, which is the most significant part of this whole miracle. This has already happened once, kind of. The bitter water was, was sweet. And all of the people who are very, very thirsty drink. But now who sees the miracle? Just the elders. Does anyone find that really, really interesting? Well, the question is why? Why just the elders? Listen, do you think that in this moment that the Lord is beginning to what we'll see as Exodus continues to go on, a bit of the discipline of the people. It's almost like, listen, I've been incredibly merciful to you and and even, as it were, gracious in allowing you to see some of these miracles. But right now, the elders are going to get to watch this. And and they'll see the product. I mean, they'll drink the water. But he brings the elders around. Well, what would be another reason for that? The crowd is starting to get contentious against Moses. So who's going to help affirm the leadership structure here, right? It's going to be this team, this network, these elders that are going to help quiet down the people. Remember, Moses, is he's a seasoned man. He's 80 plus, okay? He's got some years. He's got some wrinkles. He's got a a cane that God calls a staff, okay? I mean, he, he needs some help here. And now all of a sudden, he takes this staff, hits the rock, and water flows from it. And similar to water that was bitter becoming sweet. Imagine the massive amount of thirst that is instantaneously uh, quenched. 
And he, verse 7, called the name of the place Masa, which means test, and Amariba, which means quarrel. So, so far what we've learned in biblical Exodus teaching is that you call things exactly what they are, okay? You know what? Let's call this place testing of the Lord and quarreling so we'll forever remember what happened here. Because of the quarreling, middle of verse 7, of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's the question. At least two city names come to play in a couple other places here in Deuteronomy. Next slide. Uh, you shall not put, later in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, no, last slide, you're on it right there, yep. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Mosul. So here's this, this name coming up later in Israelite history. A few chapters later, at Tabera also and at Massa and at a name I'm not even going to try, you provoked the Lord to wrath. So if later Moses writes in Deuteronomy that, that in this story that the Lord was provoked to wrath, it seems interesting, doesn't it, that, like, do we see that wrath here? So maybe even Moses is starting to see uh, the wrathful peace of God come out. And finally, in Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter uh, 33. And of Levi, he said, give to Levi your tumum and your um uh, to your godly one whom you tested at Masa. Just proving the point that these names that are named now, these cities that are named now, come to play later. Water from a rock. And my friends, the beauty of this chapter Oh, my goodness. Here we go. You guys ready? No, you're not. No, you're not. Check this out. Verse 9. So Moses said to who? To who? Come on. Come on. To who? Listen, I grew up in the church and in Sunday school and with felt pads. One of my favorite songs was Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Anybody? Right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Come on, Jericho. Uh-huh. Jericho. Off tune. You know? Like... Amazing song, and the wall came tumbling, you know. It was like, it was a great little boy song, you know, because the Sunday school teacher was like, teachers start marching around the city, you know, we would start marching, singing the song, and we, you know, we'd build with some Legos a city, and then we just destroy it all. It was great, okay. Joshua makes his entrance into the story. Who's Joshua? He is the son of Nun, which is not an, another play on words, um, the son of Nun, that, you know, well, he has to be the son of someone. Well, that, that's actually who he's the son of, Nun, N-U-N, okay. The son of Nun. He, uh, in much of Exodus, will be an assistant to Moses and is the eventual successor to Moses. So I think we'd all agree that Joshua is a very, very significant figure in all of our study that we'll, from now on, be uh, watching. Moses said to Joshua, look at this, just after this crazy verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Joshua is introduced because all of a sudden on their journey, they find themselves in a fight. They find themselves in a battle. They're just a wandering nation, and now in a very, very dramatic twist and turn of events... They are absolutely fighting. Well, here's what the fight looks like. Deuteronomy 25 says this. Deuteronomy 25 says that the fight is, look, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. This isn't like, you know, that they were, you know, like animals. That, that all the Israelites, as they're journeying, 
the people in the back, the Amalek people come in and they start preying on these stragglers, for lack of a better term. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. So that's the battle. They're journeying. All of a sudden this people group come on and they start picking off the people that are lagging behind the crowd. So who would that be? Most often who? Come on. The seasoned, right? Those people who aren't moving as fast, maybe some children. Does anyone else want to like start fighting right now? I said, does anyone else want to start fighting right now? When you start, hold on a second, but I'm talking about on the, on the defensive. If someone starts attacking the seasoned, if someone starts attacking the children, if someone that we find out starts starting attacking the stragglers in the, in the back, is anyone else going to get a little fired up? Well, the question is, are we? Listen, in, in the context that I grew up, when anyone attacked the seasoned, it was celebrated. Those fuddy-duddies, the old people. I grew up at a church very much where the young people degraded the old. They don't understand. They don't like our music. They look down on us when we don't wear fluorescence and slacks in church. You know, what's their problem? I want to be a part of a community that defends the seasoned, that celebrates the seasoned, that encourages the seasoned. You see what I'm saying? That gets passionate when people go against that. And I'm just, I'm just not talking about 50s, 60s. I'm talking about 70s, 80s, and 90s. How many times have you made fun of Grandma Mildred driving 25 on the road? <laughs> on the interstate, you know? And how many times in your heart, come on, how many times in your heart have you been like, what in the, like, what is she doing on the road? Even though it may be true. The first fruits of your heart it's like a, a hatred towards an age group. Lord willing, you're going to be there one day too. And I'm not just talking about the elderly or the, or the seasoned. How about the kids? A little bit easier to fight for, it seems. But this is what's going on. This is the battle. This group of people starts attacking those in the back. And the name of the group of the people is the Amaleks. Hello. The Amaleks. That city was named after one particular grandson, a grandson uh, by the name of Esau. Now, if you know nothing about the Bible, it's completely okay. There were two brothers, and uh, one brother represented the Israelites, and another brother who came um, not in obedience to God was named Esau. And literally, all of the contention that surrounds the nation of Israel goes back to this brotherhood and the disobedience of their parents and the fact that one man represented Israel and the other represented not. Does anyone find it interesting that the very first battle that the Israelites go up against, the very first group of people, it's the city named after the grandson of Esau, who forever represents all of the nations of people who go against Israel. Unbelievable, at least to me. So because of this, Moses calls down Joshua. It's time to fight. It's time to defend. It's time to go to work. Middle of verse 9, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now, you remember, these are slaves. These, these men have not been trained in modern warfare. They've been working for Pharaoh. 
So I don't know who, like, how Joshua's going to pick these guys out. Maybe just buy a random line, you know, going with the, the ones that look the strongest. Okay? So if we just, you know, picture in this room who those people would be, you know, just picture a whole, it's really my physique would be like the exact epitome, you know. No, I'm just kidding at all. Is Kellen Locke here or one of the Locke boys or, you know, like a strong looking man, right? A man that doesn't have a soul patch, okay? Um, a man that's got some biceps. Like I, I imagine this is who Joshua's picking, okay? So Moses says, go choose some men, right? Go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, here's what Moses says, I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So one side of us says, what? That, Moses, that sounds weak. You're going to go, okay, so you're going to tell Joshua to go pick some dudes, and then you're going to go up in the crow's nest and, you know, watch from on high. Well, one side says cowardice. The other side says 80 plus. And most of the 80-year-olds I know are incredibly wise, right? And so in this moment of wisdom, Moses is like, you know, my fighting days with the sword probably behind me, okay? Uh, Joshua, choose some men. God's told me to get my staff. I'm going to go up there on the hill, and you're going to fight. So Joshua, verse 10, did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and what's the next? Her, which, in, you know, all of us instantly think of Ben-Hur or... Um, not this here, went up to the top of the hill. Now, her later becomes a, a judicial figure in Israel, in Israel, but you have Joshua down fighting with the soldiers. Up on the hill, you have Moses, you have Aaron, and you have her. And now our story gets absolutely tasty. Check this out. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. This is really weird, isn't it? So let's try to get this picture, and I hope I'm not pitting out here. But um, he holds up his hands, and when he's doing so, the word prevailed here, Israel prevails, which, which means they're defending well, they're progressing, they're killing and when he drops his hands, the scripture says that Amalek is prevailing, which means what? Uh, the scripture doesn't say, but we can assume maybe a couple things. At least Israel is getting pushed back. Israel is being defeated in some ways. And maybe even some Israelites are dying. All based on the placement of the hands. Now, there's been a lot of theories on this. It was a prayer posture. Uh, the power was... In Moses' hands, it was another symbol like he did at the, at the, the sea. I actually don't think any of those. I think for the Israelites, and even for Moses, this staff that had represented all through the plagues and so far all through their journey in the wilderness, a representation of the power of God, now shows in a very clear picture the power of God, and the weakness of the flesh. Look what happens next. This is insane. Verse 12. 
But Moses' hands grew weary, as they would. Have you ever tried to hold your arms out like this for a long period of time? Let alone when you're 80? Seriously. Listen, in basketball practice when I was in high school, we used to have to like, you know, sit our backs against the wall and hold a basketball out like this. You know, give me a minute and 30 seconds, I'm ready to keel over dead, you know. Like later tonight when you go home, okay, husbands and wives, friends, whatever, just do this test. Just stick your arms out like this, you know, grab some staff that you have randomly at your house and just hold out your arms. Give yourself some time. His, his arms were growing weary. You can feel the burn like right here. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took, <laughs> they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Now, I'm not sure about you, but if I'm Moses, I'm like, thanks, boys, you know? Like, really? A stone, you know? Like, is this really the best you got? But, but they're, they're trying to prop him up, and we'd all agree, you know, lazy boys weren't yet uh, originated, and certainly in the desert of sin, they weren't prevalent. So they grab what's at their access, and please, if you haven't seen anything yet, look at this. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands... One on one side, and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Come on now. So just imagine this with me, right? Moses, 80 plus, sitting on a stone, staff in his hand, arms being held up by Aaron and Hur until the sun goes down. And therefore, Israel's army, led by Joshua, prevailing. Do we want to be taught on the issue of reliance on God? Believing that part of relying on God is understanding the insanely powerful reality of the body of Christ. I'm not so sure in the rank of what teaches us reliance on God that the body of Christ wouldn't be very near the top. Why? Because we're messy. We're difficult people. We struggle. We got complaints. We grumble sometimes. We go through difficult seasons. But the beauty of the body of Christ that are made the body because of Jesus and Christ implanting his spirit in them, which is the thing that unifies people in Christ. The beauty of it is the reliance on God that we learn with and for one another. Listen, I'm guaranteeing if you spend any time in the body of Christ, there have been seasons where others have had to come alongside and not just encourage you, but have very literally had to hold your hand. And I'm saying, was that such a bad thing? Was it such a bad thing in that moment for God to bring along someone who could very physically and very really love on and encourage you? My question is, is is that something that you've opened yourself up to? Uh, On Sundays here at Matthias, we have what we call lot families. Um, 24 of them, a bunch of people sit around a living room. And the whole intention and purpose is that we learn together what it means to live life together. To share, to be vulnerable, to confess sin, to celebrate, to applaud God when he moves. 
and I know so many of you are so fearful of community because in all, rea- in all reality, you don't want no one holding up your hands. You still think you can do it on your own. You still think that when you're 80 years old, both figuratively and here metaphorically, when you're 80 years old, you're going to be able to grab your staff and with, listen, lives hanging in the balance, properly and strongly hold out your arms for the entirety. And I'm just telling you, one of the beauties of the body of Christ is the opportunity for us to journey together. There are a bunch of people in this room right now that need help, and you need it first from the Lord, first and foremost, always and forever. But is it possible that even one of the steps of that crying out for help is by finally praying that God would open yourself up to again believe, though you've been burned before, though people have hurt you, though people have lied to you, though people have cheated, all those things, that you could see the beauty of this moment of an 80-year-old man sitting on a rock with two brothers of his on his side, holding up his arms as the army is fighting, as a war is being waged, as lives are hanging in the balance. Marriages in this room that need help. Men that need to be held accountable and discipled. Women that need to be taught how to fear the Lord and nothing else. And on and on and on. We are the body of Christ. His church, his bride, he's coming back for us, the Bible says. One of the greatest privileges we have is getting to sit with a brother or a sister and hold the arm up as they learn to become more reliant on the Lord. What a beautiful picture. Moses physically cannot hold up his arms, but a couple brothers. And all of a sudden, the whole scene changes. But my friends, the, the beauty has yet to be done. Verse 13 And Joshua overwhelmed the Amalek and his people with the sword. He kills them. Not all of them. Their full demise is coming. We'll see that later. But Moses and these two men, watch. Listen, can you imagine what this is doing to the people? Like, we don't have some uh, commentary here by Moses. But can you just imagine? You're a slave. Now, all of a sudden, you're watching people die. You're in an army. I mean, this is... This is really affecting. This is building. This is, God, what are you doing out here with us? And here's what God says. To commemorate that the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That's not encouraging talk from God, you know. But what is he saying? Believe me, Joshua. There will be many victories, and this will be one. And we're going to watch this through this whole journey of Exodus. And then verse 15, and please, please, please. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my what? Banner. Speaking of Sunday school songs, uh, some of you guys remember the banner over me is love. The banner over me is love. His banner over me it's, you guys remember? It's love. Never understood the song. What does it even mean? His banner over me is love. Is it like some like National League pennant, you know, that the Cubs are going to win next year? Like, what's the, what's the deal with the banner? Now, listen. Listen. Here's what banner means in the Hebrew. It means a sign, a shield. E- even, I would say, 
as wars and years progressed, do you know, like, have you ever seen an old English movie or about old English wars? They would often, what, in, in war, like lead with a banner, right, with a sign. It, it was to be a symbol of trust. It, maybe it's even equivalent to um, some of the images that we've seen of American wars where the flag is planted. It's that kind of image of trust, of reliance. Moses builds an altar, not to sacrifice on it, but to worship and say, the Lord is my banner. He's our sign. He's our shield. He's our victory. He's gone before us. This is who he is. Saying, verse 16, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, which seems like a really weird thing to worship. Like this seems like a a strange worship tune, right? And the Lord will have war with Amalek forever, and they will be slain. But if you're God's people, and if you're trying to learn who God is, and if you're really trying to understand this question, then it's huge. Next slide. If you're really trying to understand this question, do you want to be taught reliance? Then moments like this are huge. What is God doing with these people? He's asking them this question. Do you want to be taught reliance? So I was thinking and I want to share some of these reasons why we don't. The reasons why you and I don't want to be taught reliance on God at all. Uh, here's one that will be helpful. It's easier to complain. We don't want to be taught reliance because we'd rather sit in the gray for the rest of our lives. It's way easier not to do anything and to point fingers at everything. And I just want to really, really peer into the hearts of those people here. If you find yourselves with minimal action and a loud mouth, the scripture says be slow to speak and quick to listen. We've talked about it as we journey through this. It's easy to complain about everything under the sun. And in this case, it's very, very easy just to complain rather to become reliant on anything. Because then you can be an expert at everything. Because all you do is complain. And you find yourself sitting in the middle. If it goes this way, then you love them. If it goes that way, then you hate them. Anyone? Okay. Next thing. Reasons why we don't want to be taught reliance. Reliance on someone has hurt you in the past. We're done with the whole reliance issue because in the past, I relied on someone. And you know what? They burned me. They hurt me. Two categories. First, if a non-believer has proven unreliance, listen, we cannot expect non-believers to do believing things. Amen. Cannot. Overextend love. Overextend grace. If you are not or do not have the Spirit of God in you, and we're somehow expecting that the non-believer on the road is not going to get road rage, what, what reason would they have to not? Of course, they're going to be angry. They're going to chuck things out of the window. They're going to maybe even show us a very special finger. This is what they do. Just a couple days ago, I'm driving, didn't know, pulled out in front of someone, and then I'm trying not to look at them because I know they're angry. And Heidi and Heidi goes, "Oh yeah, they just they just gave they just gave you the Falcon, you know." And um, I mean, what am I supposed to do at that point? You know, in in my heart, I want to look at them and be like. You know, just kind of wave and smile, kill them with kindness. Instead, I just ignore. So on the first thing, listen, if a non-believer has ever proven to be not reliant, there is a reason for that. Now, how about a believer? 
stings a little bit more, hurts a little bit more. They're supposed to be, we'll say, something different. Here's what I've learned. Um, Every single one of us, in some way, shape, form, have even wronged one another, okay? If you journey with a group of people for long enough, you've realized that there's pain and agony and distrust and all kinds of things that go along with relationships. I really tried and really tried to plead to the Lord to help humble my heart, to constantly have a reminder that, listen, if I've received grace, if I've received mercy, if I have been forgiven, then forgiveness much, uh, must be extended from my heart. And what I've learned is it's way, way, way more joyful to live forgiving people than it is to be holding up grudges. It's way more joyful. And, and, you, and you, you may be like, well, Mark, but where's the healing in that? Listen, I find healing in just forgiving people. It's so healing. Well, am I going to spend another sleepless night being angry? For what? If the Lord's forgiven me, then I must be freely forgiving. Third thing. Do we want to be taught reliance reasons why we don't? Because you cannot give up control. You do not want to be reliant on anything because you must be in charge. And if you're not, then it's all going to go downhill. Some of you really believe that in your heart. If you're not the leader, if you're not the one speaking, if you're not the one getting glory, if you're not the one driving, if you're not the one building relationships, and on and on and on. The fourth thing is this. Because reliance does not imply safety. That's why. You don't want to rely because you tried that once and then God sent you somewhere that was incredibly uncomfortable. Right? We're going to celebrate another couple missionaries headed out this summer to Ecuador. Oh, you tried that once. You submitted to the Lord. You gave yourself to God and then... Listen. Where does God send the Israelites? Come on. Where does he send them? Where does he send them? In the wilderness, without what? Water. And what did the scripture say in verse 1? The Lord commanded it. Why? So that God could teach them reliance. So that he could provide for them. So that he could bless them. So that he could encourage them. And you may be like, but what if they die out there? What kind of blessing in that? And that's what I keep telling you. In Christ, though we die, we live. There is always blessing in Christ, no matter how it all ends up. Reliance never implies safety. And in my opinion, that's the beautiful thing. Now finally, the reasons why you don't um, rely is because you don't don't know God. Don't know Him. Don't know Him. No way you would rely on someone that you don't know. If that's your biggest one tonight, I just want to talk to you for two minutes, if that's cool. You may have no idea who he is. Tonight you may be like, okay, so God makes water come out of rocks. That's pretty cool. But what else? Can I tell you about God? If you don't know him, can I tell you? Is that cool? Listen. Um. The scripture says that while we were still sinners, that Christ died. Here's what that means. God sent his son, knowing full well all of the deplorable things that you would do, that you would think, that you would experience. Knowing all of that. The nastiest things that he could, like that you could ever, ever do. Knowing that, 
God sends his son. And when God sends his son, he sends his son fully God and fully man. The scripture says when he fasted, he was hungry, fully man. And yet he performed miracles, prophesied, taught, like a man with authority, fully God. And that fully God, fully man, form in the person of Jesus, the scripture says, on his own doing, in obedience to the Father, goes to an execution stake on a cross and dies. And you're like, if you don't know God, you're like, why in the world would he do that? Because years and years and years worth of animal sacrifice was the way that sin was atoned for. And now in Christ, that had to be nullified. It had to be done with. Now, with one sacrifice, all of sin could be forgiven. And that one sacrifice was Jesus. Let me tell you about my God. No one earned that. No one ever deserved that. God didn't look down and say, man, this Peter guy, he's really awesome. I better send Jesus to save him. No, he saw the same problem in you that he saw in me, separated from God in desperate need of salvation. And so he freely sent his son who took on the pain and wrath of God against sin on a cross. But let me tell you something, if you don't know God, three days later, maybe you've worn your fluorescence to a church one day celebrating Easter, but let me tell you something, on Easter we celebrate because it's commemorating something that's true still today. The tomb is empty, our God rose from the dead, which means this, that death has no sting, that you and I live in Christ. If you don't know God, if you're here and you're like, I'm not going to rely on a God because I don't know him. I've just told you about him. He's changed my life. Completely flipped every piece of me upside down. Has he produced something that's perfect? No. But he's called me a son. And he's given me hope. And he's washed clean every sin that I've ever committed and every sin that I will. And that means I get to stand in victory, in grace and forgiveness on Christ and nothing else. One more note about God. He says himself, no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way to right relationship with God. And that's what you and I need, my friends. And so listen, if you're here and you do not know him, I'm just telling you've heard about him now. And there's so much more to say. So maybe for you tonight, maybe a huge piece of your heart is just, ah, I want control and I, but if relying on God means he's going to lead, that I don't have to anymore, that I don't have to try, then, then Lord help me. And for all the rest of us, God has these Israelites in the desert to teach them reliance Have we confessed to the Lord our desire to be taught reliance? Are you ready to pray that prayer? Are you ready to ask the Lord, God, teach us. Help us give up control. Help us show us a different heart than complaining. Tonight, as a church, all of us, believer or not, the question is, will you rely on God? The banner, the shield, the victor. Let's stand together. Come on. Um, 
don't do this. But feeling led to tonight, so I will. I feel like some of you guys uh, tonight, you're right there. You're like, I, I've come in here not wanting to know God or don't. But as you share, and as I've been here tonight, there's all of a sudden this desire to know God. I don't even know what that means, but I just, I want to at least tell someone that I want to know him. Uh, if that's you tonight, um, I'm going to be standing right, right back there in that back corner here in a second. If that's you tonight, just make your way over there. I'd love to share some more with you. We're going to have a chance to pray together and just hear where you're at. Let me tell you one thing about this body. Listen, just wherever you're at, no one's going to throw a stone. We're on a journey, all of us in desperate need of Christ. And for the rest of us, listen, as we sing and respond right now, what an amazing time for you to be reminded that relying on yourself will forever get you nowhere. A poem with pleasantries will be the end. But reliance on Christ, the direction of God, everything. So if that's you, I'd love to talk with you and the rest of us. Let's respond to this great gospel that saved us. Come on.